Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Breathe Easy Podcast. I'm your host, Asesha McKinney. I practice sleep medicine in Chicago, Illinois. I'm a member of the SRN Assembly at American Thoracic Society. Topic for today's discussion is health disparities in obstructive sleep apnea. This is part one of a two-part podcast series with a focus on prevalence and diagnosis. I'm very excited to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Susan Redline from Harvard. Dr. Redline is a Peter C. Farrell Professor of Sleep Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Professor of Epidemiology at Harvard School of Public Health. She's the Director of Programs for Sleep Medicine Epidemiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. She reads the Sleep Reading Center for several major NIH multi-center studies and has contributed numerous ideas and publications in the field. Dr. Redline is a visionary who has leveraged digital platforms for harnessing patient data and embraces machine learning and AI tools in her research work. She also has a great interest in promoting the importance of diversity in sleep medicine and research. Her particular focus is on gender and sex-related differences and how they ultimately affect cardiovascular outcomes and has written extensively on the same. It is an honor to have you here today, Dr. Redline. Thank you very much for that very kind and overly generous introduction. All right. So let's segue into the discussion today. So uh, Dr. Redline, my first question will be focusing on how do we frame the concept of disparities in obstructive sleep apnea and why is this important? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. It's really a fundamental question, isn't it? Um, we now appreciate that health disparity is a difference in um, a health condition and health care due to social, economic, and environmental disadvantages. And in fact, when we think about sleep apnea, which clearly has multiple effects on well-being, alertness, uh, likelihood of living a long life free of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, uh, it, it couldn't be more relevant to the, the issues of equity across the population. Um, so when, again, when we uh, step back and think about health disparities in sleep apnea, we have to think about those upstream risk factors, those environmental and social risk factors that may actually increase the uh, prevalence and severity of sleep apnea, potentially at even very young ages because of potentially exposures to pollutions and um, uh, stress um, pollutions and toxins, and even stress in the environment that could promote inflammation in the nasal passages in the throat, and general systemic inflammation of all of which may increase sleep apnea risk. But we also have to think of not only the prevalence and severity of the condition, but the likelihood that the condition is recognized and treated in a timely basis, and then managed um, in, in a way that the individual um, really gets the care that they deserve, which is often not a pill, as you know, but really requires a long-term relationship and troubleshooting and sometimes multiple therapies, which require often resources and access to specialty care. As you all know, that obstructive sleep apnea research itself is very unique and it's very hard to conduct compared to other medical disorders. Do you agree? Oh, uh, yes, for sure. It's really one of the real the challenges, whereas you might 
do blood pressure research by measuring your blood pressure three times in a sitting position or diabetes by getting a blood test. In sleep apnea um, and sleep research, we require overnight sleep studies. And unfortunately, we do not have simple to use screening instruments, whether it's a questionnaire or, you know, any other very simple approach. And that requires um, a lot of investment and resources to have individuals undergo sleep studies. And also up until very recently, there have been very few interventions to even test. And in fact, even the prospect of offering only a single intervention that is CPAP I think discouraged um, many patients from wanting to be in studies because the patients may not understand the implication and the potential benefit of a device that you use every night. And on the other hand, I think um, because the sleep community themselves are so excited about the potential benefits of treating sleep apnea, we often have discouraged um, some clinicians from enrolling their patients in studies because of the possibility that they would not get offered the treatment. So there's been a lot of challenges. As it is, sleep itself being a very dynamic phenomenon that occurs differently across the age groups and across the genders. And the dynamic nature of it suggests that the disparities are even wider when you compare different sets of population at different points across their lives. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think you bring up a very important point. And that is that um, when we think about a disease like at, like sleep apnea, we have to take a life course perspective and um, recognize that sleep apnea may first manifest at very young ages. Um, and in fact, it might even untreated sleep apnea may permanently alter the, the shape of your upper airway and potentially even predispose you to sleep apnea later in life. Um, on the other hand, we also know that there are times in life like in women during the menopause transition where there may be some rapid weight gain, central weight gain that also may both increase risk for cardiovascular disease, but also increase risk for sleep apnea that needs to be accounted for. And then at an advanced age, as individuals lose muscle mass and become more frail, um, but develop other many comorbidities, those um, pose a whole different set of risk factors that may influence sleep apnea and its recognition in older individuals. So the symptom profile and the disease severity might really vary. And it, it's like the variable nature of the disease itself, which uh, makes it harder to compare to across the groups. So um, my next question is uh, environmental risk factors like smoking and obesity and other things, which perpetuate the underlying genetic other risk factors. Are the effect of the environmental risk factors different in different groups of populations? It's it's a very very interesting question, um, and I um, and it's other than potentially obesity, um, the other risk factors are relatively understudied. So obesity um, appears to have potentially greater effects um, on precipitating sleep apnea in individuals from Asian ancestry versus other groups. And that may be because of variations in cranial facial structure that may predispose um, certain 
individuals, depending on their background, to have a more collapsible airway, even with small weight gain. So that's one example where a risk factor may actually differ in its relative impact across groups. Um, but the other risk factors, interestingly, the environmental and social risk factors are relatively unexplored across the board. So for example, diet, which is related to um, obesity itself, independent of weight, appears to increase risk for sleep apnea with some recent work, for example, my colleagues, uh, Tiani Wong and others have done in the Nurses' Health Study showing that pro-inflammatory diets increase risk for sleep apnea, but yet we don't traditionally think of diet independent of sleep apnea as a risk factor, and yet diet has strong social cultural differences. Another factor is physical activity. So again, apart from just obesity, the, the more the less active, the more sedentary individuals are, the more likely they're going to have sleep apnea, whether that's due to effects on general inflammation and fitness, or if it's even due to how fluid is distributed across the body and 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 as um, has been proposed, you know, the whole rostral redistribution of fluid in the neck, which may be modulated by walking is another issue. So individuals living in dangerous neighborhoods or neighborhoods with limited green space or who themselves have multiple jobs so that they don't have the um, access or the availability of physical activity may be disadvantaged. And then finally, what I what I brought up before that's really understudied, although I, my group and a few others now are starting to look at some of these factors, relates to pollution and how um, neighborhood disadvantage, for example, is a significant risk factor for sleep apnea in children. But what is it about the neighborhood? Um, is it the stress and the chaos, or is it chronic exposures to particulates and and um, other other toxins that may in, in increase both inflammation as well as altered central drives? And then, of course, secondhand smoking, even in children, environmental tobacco smoke, that is, is a, is also a risk factor for sleep apnea in children. But again, most of the focus of the last number of years has been on obesity without these other social and environmental risk factors and behavioral health risk factors. So I think the good news is there may be a lot of opportunity to maybe improve equities by further focusing on those factors. My next question is about one of the topics that's very dear to you, gender differences. I want to get a sense of... Um, what should we look out for symptom-wise when we hear women talk about their history in sleep clinics compared to men? Yeah, thank you for asking me that. Um, so um, I think the growing amount of work is really identifying some unique phenotypes in women compared to men. And when you even look at a polysomnogram in a woman, their apneas or hypopneas are shorter. They tend, because those events are shorter, there's often less desaturation. There may be, though, a higher autonomic nervous system response that may be manifest by a cortical arousal, but um, even more so, and this is some 
work we're just doing now, it may be manifest by an abrupt change in heart rate, more of a cardiac autonomic response. And um, and the woman's EEG you know, um, also may show a phenotype of greater arousability. And that, in other words, sounds a lot like insomnia with almost a hyperarousal state during wakefulness. But unlike men who uh, may have insomnia and sleep apnea, where, again, arousability may then go down during sleep, in women, it may persist. So what that really is telling us is women may present, and then, oh, and then one more thing is women tend to have much more severe sleep apnea in REM sleep than non-REM sleep. Okay, so what that may tell us is if we use a diagnostic tool that's really dependent on desaturations and doesn't pick arousability, potentially cardiac arousability, we may underestimate sleep apnea in women. If we also do diagnostic testing that doesn't capture those periods in REM that are often early in the morning or toward the end of a sleep study, we also may underestimate sleep apnea in women. And then from a um, symptom perspective, again, women may not present with as profound sleepiness, but may present with more insomnia type symptoms. You know, the, the, the entity that is now referred to as comorbid um, uh, sleep apnea with insomnia or kumaisa or at least they may be presenting with sleep disturbances and fatigue rather than sleepiness, really emphasizing we have to do a comprehensive sleep history that isn't focused on the stereotype hypersomnolent obese man. And then finally, from um, a treatment perspective, it may be that this um, low arousal threshold that many women have which makes them more likely to wake up with a certain respiratory stimulation, may in fact be a reason that many women don't tolerate CPAP. It's not because of a lack of will and desire or volition, but it really has to do with their underlying physiology. Like a comparison versus home sleep apnea test, like who would do better compared to men and women? Do you think women do worse? You know, I think it means what kind of sleep apnea test we're talking about. Okay, and and I think if we have one that is only looking at nasal airflow changes and oxygen saturation, I think we might be, you know, um, increasing the likelihood of missing sleep apnea. I think as we develop smarter ways to monitor sleep at night that takes account um, factors such as you know, changes in heart rate as a measure of cardiac arousal and incorporate those into our algorithms, they may prove to be very useful. And we do know that even heart rate variability may be even markers of REM and non-REM. So even give us an assessment of whether we get, you know, sufficient REM estimates at night as well. Um, one other thing that I, I should mention is that uh, flow limitation is also, um, this has been noted by Christian Gillenwald many, many years ago when he described, you know, rearers, you know, are often more commonly found in women than men. And what that may really mean is, again, sort of high upper airway resistance, but not such high, not such deep collapsibility that you get a frank apnea. 
and but there's still an increased work of breathing. So even techniques maybe to get at snoring, which isn't the same as flow limitation, but maybe closely related, as well as better ways to quantify flow limitation rather than rely on gross apneas also may be useful. And those are potentially amenable for home tests. So I think home tests are going to be more important as we go on, but we may need different tests and different ways of interpreting the data. My next question is about, does obstructive sleep apnea pose the same level of risk for cardiovascular health in women compared to men? Yeah, also a really good question. And you you might know that a number of years ago, when the first results of the Sleep Heart Health Study, which is still the, this the United States' is, you know, largest prospective um, study of cardiovascular consequences of sleep apnea, my colleagues and I reported that um that the likelihood that sleep apnea over four to eight years period resulted in a myocardial infarction or a stroke, or even heart failure was less in women than men. And that gave a lot of consternation of why that might be. And one possibility for that observation was, in fact, that that women um, who on average developed sleep apnea at a later age than men, you know, as I said, not um, consistently, but many women first really developed sleep apnea around the time of menopause. And what that means is when you study a woman and a man at any given point in a longitudinal cohort study, and then follow them over time, the male may have had cumulative exposure to sleep apnea for many, many years. And the woman in the study may have had accumulative exposure for only a few years. And if you're looking at an outcome like hypertension and uh, atherosclerosis that takes years in general to develop and that may be the explanation and in fact just a few years ago uh, my colleagues and I re-examined a subset of the sleep heart health data and continued our follow-up of that same cohort for 13 years as the woman actually had um, you know we're, we're, we're really advancing in age and in, in one study, we found that women actually were more likely to develop left ventricular hypertrophy, were more likely to develop heart failure, and more likely to die than males, even at the same level of sleep apnea 13 years earlier, suggesting that over time, women actually catch up, unfortunately, and may even their risk may even exceed that of men. Um, moving on to racial differences. And um, I read a lot of papers where there is very clear documentation. There is increased prevalence and increased severity in pediatric and adult patients for obstructive sleep apnea. And uh, uh, mainly the papers that I read were about like the African-American patient populations. Um, Can we talk about this, like reasons why Yeah, I, you know, there have been relatively few studies that have really compared um, different um, groups by race, ethnicity in a side-by-side comparison. So I do think that we need to take some of the data with a grain of salt when we talk about prevalence. What, from the data that I've seen over the years, I think every study that I've seen that has included white children and African-American children have shown 
more severe sleep apnea in the African-American children, um, higher prevalence of sleep apnea in African-American children, and less response to adenotonsillectomy. So I think in the pediatric realm, I think there is some really very convincing evidence that there are these big differences in prevalence and severity in children. And then when we further look beyond race and ethnicity, it's there's a large component that is explained by neighborhood disadvantage, the census tract these children live in. And that's been shown not only in um, a number of cities in the US, but even in Canada. Um, in Montreal, a study showed that same kind of relationship. And that's given me, you know, sort of uh, uh, reason to focus on some of the factors we spoke about a little earlier, like secondhand smoke and pollution, and potentially even indoor exposures to allergens and irritants, um, as well as those other lifestyle factors. So I think in children, the prevalence is quite, um, you know, pronounced. As we get into older adults, it gets very complicated because there may even be some survival biases in terms of the older adults we study. Um, there's a lot of comorbidities and there's questions about whether you should adjust those prevalence rates for comorbidities or obesity. Um, I, I think some of the data in adults that I find most striking, I also alluded to, and I think that is that Asian uh, individuals with Asian ancestry at any given weight have more severe sleep apnea than individuals from European ancestry. And that's not to say that sleep apnea in African-Americans is uncommon. It's very common. But the problem is it's also very common in European Americans. And so when we studied, for example, the Jackson Heart Study, a group of individuals in the community in Jackson, Mississippi, we had about a 33% prevalence of moderate to severe sleep apnea. However, that prevalence we also saw in the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, even amongst our white individuals. So I think in adults, the prevalence of sleep apnea is so high, it is amongst all groups. It is harder to see, to tease apart how the, the, the patterning by race and ethnicity. In children, it's much more obvious. Um, on the other hand, having said that, what I think is very prominent is that in many studies, African-Americans are less likely to be screened, get diagnoses, and be adequately treated. And I think even the way we use CPAP and grab machines away from people if they don't show adequate adherence causes a disadvantage to certain populations who may not be able to, you know, may not have stable households or may need more support due to stressful home environments. Is there a bias in the studies that we're doing, like a selection bias where we are seeing more severe patient populations of a certain ethnicity and um, is there any way we can optimize the current screening and diagnostic methods and choose the appropriate test for each patient? Yeah, so it's very, you know, selection biases are really hard to sort out and quantify. But clearly, I, you know, how a person gets recognized is influenced by many, many factors. 
Um, and if you have a bed partner, you're more likely to be brought in to see your sleep doctor. Mm -hmm. If you're living home, alone at home, if you have probably three jobs, you're less likely to go in to get, you know, make a morning appointment to see a sleep doctor's morning clinic. So there's many factors in addition to other implicit or even explicit biases and how we take a sleep history and, and, and so forth. But um, I think it's, it's very, very possible that, um, you know, that the, that you, uh, when you have many limited resources, uh, maybe the most severe individuals are the ones that, you know, end up getting, um, you know, sort of diagnosed. Um, the sleep questionnaires, I think a simple question about snoring is very useful. I think it opens up a conversation. But, you know, I think we know that most, you know, snoring per se um, is not sensitive or specific enough or specific enough, I should say, to, to make a diagnosis and requires more testing. I think one of the challenges we're now facing is relates to some of the data that really was stimulated by the, the COVID pandemic that identified on average, even our simple oximeters that we use, which can be considered a screening instrument as well as a diagnostic instrument, um, may be biased um, in terms of how well they function in pigmented skin. Uh, the extent of that bias and the extent to which is clinically significant isn't yet clear, but I think this is really a call for us to re-examine how medical devices get approved by the FDA and ensure that they are providing as comparable results as across groups and that providers and patients understand the potential biases too. So screening needs, so these are all some common problems. Again, what I'm hoping is that some of the, the, the um, uh, uh, groups who are working on these new generation of wearable devices um, that may measure heart rate and snoring and, um, and maybe, you know, and, and movement, maybe we'll start with AI or machine learning uh, ways to get at better signatures to at least get it trigger people to come in to be more fully evaluated. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Lynn. So thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, with that, I would like to end. Okay. Thank okay. you so much. Have a great day. I you appreciate too. the opportunity.